morning, church. It's always good to take communion together, and, and it's wonderful to just to come as a body, as one fellowship, and, and to worship the Lord. And uh, today we're going to be in the book of Acts as we continue our verse-by-verse study, and we're in chapter 15. Uh, what we had Melanie read for you was coming from Romans, and uh, we'll be moving around a lot of scripture today. Uh, I, I think that what is key for any pastor who delivers the Word of God is that he, he be in the Word of God, that he preach from the Word of God. It's not about getting up and postulating on what you think about this or that or opinions. Everybody has opinions, and uh, opinions come and go. What doesn't ever go is the Word of God. It stands forever, right? So that's what we're committed to here. It's good to look out and see the boys from Teen Challenge. And boys, we love having you every week. You're part of our church family. Amen. And, uh, uh, and then also, we've got a, some folks who are out with COVID this week. I was kind of surprised by the number of people who are down with COVID. It's, it's like a cold now. It's not, not a big deal. But uh, uh, let's always respect those who, who might be feeling under the weather. Keep them in prayer. Well, let's get started in the Word. And today, we're going to focus on... Uh, last week, you know, we, we focused on uh, the first part of Acts 15 where it talks about the, who's saved and who isn't saved and what is, it, what is required of a person to be saved. And so that was dealt with as we look further into chapter 15. Let's pick up at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Who is this? This is Paul and Barnabas. They're reporting on the first missionary journey how many people got saved, and the, the miraculous signs that God did amongst the people. And so as they report this, people are getting excited. It says in verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, if you go back to verse 1 and 2, you actually see a different group of people coming to Paul and Barnabas when they were up at the church in Antioch in Syria. And they came all the way from Jerusalem. And they were Judaizers. A Judaizer is one who is calling you back to Judaism. These were not saved people. These were not saved men who came all the way to Antioch to proclaim in the church that unless you practice the laws of Moses, unless you were circumcised, unless you followed the dietary laws, you couldn't possibly be saved. And that's heresy. That is heresy. We're not saved by works. We're saved solely by grace through faith, right? And so that was a separate issue. This now, it's now Paul and Barnabas, because of that discussion up in Antioch, they are now coming to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James and the other apostles and disciples to have a time of debate over what is the what is what does salvation constitute and what must a person do after they're saved. And on the way there, they're experiencing something that's very interesting. A different group comes up, and the, it says here that these were some believers. So these are not lost people, these are not pagans. These are not Judaizers. These are believers, Jewish believers, but who still have a sensitivity for the law of Moses, for the dietary laws and things of that nature. 
And so they're not saying that you can't be saved unless you practice the law. They're saying, no, you can, you're saved by grace through faith. But after you're saved, you need to follow along with the laws, the rituals, the ceremonies that we have because they've been passed down to us. So this is a different group. The difference between these believers and the party of the Pharisees is they didn't argue that the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Their argument was that their salvation and after salvation, you're still obligated to some degree to the law of Moses. To them, circumcision and keeping the law were not a means of salvation, but obedience required after salvation. Now let me explain quickly for a believer, what you are going through, what you are experiencing if you are converted, if you're born again, if you're saved. What's, the one who saves you is God, not man. Therefore, anything man does has zero ability or power to save you. You're only saved by God and by the work of God. And the work of God is sending Jesus Christ incarnate to earth to live a perfect life, to be fully God, fully man, to go to the cross, to take on God's wrath and his anger and his justice. Jesus took that upon himself, and he was put to death. It was not at the hands of the Jews. It was not the Romans. It was God himself who put his son to death on the cross. He paid the full punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus suffered full wages of sin for all humanity on the cross. So when you are saved by God immediately, instantaneously, faster than the blinking of your eye, the Holy Spirit takes your unregenerate spirit and regenerates it. You become regenerated by God immediately you come alive in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creature. Old things pass away. That's the picture of baptism right there. Covered by water, immersed, the Bible teaches. And then all of a sudden, all things become new. You're raised in Christ into a new life. Amen? You have new life in Jesus Christ. That's what happens. That's salvation. All of it is the work of God. Even the faith that you, that you need in order to be saved. It says, by grace through faith, we're saved. Even the grace, even the faith comes from God. You don't do anything. It's all God. Once you're saved, now that you're born again, unconverted, now you're converted, now the Holy Spirit lives in you. The Bible says your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within. Now you are alive in Christ, spiritually speaking, and the Spirit of God is in you. And now you live a life, a pursuit, a process of sanctification. That is not salvation. Salvation is an event. Listen. It only happens once. You can't get saved over and over. To do that, that would be man's work. God doesn't save over and over and over. 
When God saves, that's it. You're saved. And from that moment of, e of that event of salvation going forward, now you're in a process of yielding to the Holy Spirit who resides in you. You are yielding, you are laying down your flesh and allowing your spirit to worship God. And you are following God, you're obeying God, you're living by the word of God. The sanctification is the process whereby we yield our lives for God's use. To be sanctified is to be separated. It means holy. You're set apart as holy. Now I don't live the way I used to live. Now I'm a different person. Doesn't mean you won't mess up. You will. You'll sin. But that doesn't cause you to lose your salvation when you sin. The Spirit doesn't say, oh my goodness, i got to pack my bags and move out. The guy just sinned again. No, no, he's in you. And he will convict you when you sin. So that you continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Peter told the church. So it's a process. In our text, what we see happening here amongst some believers they are saying that the process, the sanctification process, includes following the dietary laws, living a certain way as the Jews live. Now look, he's talking about Gentiles here. Gentiles are who? Anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. When a, when a Gentile is converted, they come to Christ, the Jews are concerned because they don't have any background to the laws of Moses they're not following any of the steps and they were frustrated with that we want the Gentiles to follow the same steps we had to follow this is the argument but the reality is once you are saved you have been set free from the law of Moses in the sense of man's law the the keeping of the law Christ is the one who fulfilled the law not you not the Jews. They never fulfilled it. They couldn't fulfill it. And so you're not bound by law in the process of sanctification. You're bound by love. The Bible says in the New Testament, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. There's life. There's freedom in Christ. Amen? Aren't you glad for that? That you're not required to follow some strict Old Testament law? on food or on, on sacrifice or anything. I mean, you're, you're, you're free. It doesn't mean that the ten, ten Commandments goes away. Those are moral laws, and we should keep them. It doesn't mean the second half of the Ten Commandments, which deals with the relationship laws. We should keep those. But not in the sense that if I fail in one, I lose my salvation. You don't if you're saved. Now, if you're not saved, none of this makes any sense to you. And it doesn't mean anything to anybody. If you're not saved, you don't care. But if you're saved, don't struggle. Don't let somebody put you under a yoke. And that's what we're going to see here in the text. This is really interesting here. Uh, they were much like, the, these guys were the weaker brothers of Romans 14. Okay? Who held to a dietary law, a ritual, a Sabbath code. And they did it for the sake of conscience. 
They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah who died for their sins and rose from the dead, but that didn't mean they would forsake keeping the Mosaic Law as a way of life. They were genuine Christians but had not yet realized the liberating truth that comes through Christ, that the ceremonial and ritual shadows of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had all passed away. So New Covenant believer, and that's what you are, Paul and Barnabas and, and Peter and uh, James, they're going to address new covenant believers. You and I are new covenant believers. We just practiced it in communion. We participated in what Jesus said, I want you to drink of this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood. Last week we established that the Seder meal was the only way for the Jews to recognize Passover. Jesus took the, the Seder meal the night before he was the night of his betrayal. He took the Seder meal with his disciples, the Passover meal. But after the meal, he then taught them a new covenant, which made the Passover going forward illegitimate. You're not taking communion for the same reasons that they took Passover. They took Passover to remember what God provided for their forefathers in the wilderness. We don't do that. We are remembering what Christ did for us on the cross. Amen? And that's where we find our freedom. So let's keep going here. I want you to see this. In 1 Corinthians 9.21, it says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In other words, we don't have a license to sin just because we now have Christian liberty. Look at verse 6 in our text. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So this is Peter saying, You heard from me that God revealed to me that the Gentiles believe in Jesus Christ the same way we believe in Jesus Christ, and they're saved the same way we're saved. Look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. We experienced the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. These believers, these Gentiles that I ministered to in the house of Cornelius, they received Christ the same way. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts. Look at this. Not by their works of following the, Judea, uh, the uh, Judaism, but by faith. This is how a person is saved, by faith. And we shouldn't, listen now, please, church, be sensitive in this. Don't place a yoke on someone else regarding salvation. Because you practice certain things in your sanctification doesn't mean that they have to practice the same thing salvation comes by one thing only by grace through faith rest in that and if somebody sees something differently you can't jump to the conclusion that they're wrong and you're right because in christ listen everything is now acceptable now not everything's profitable but it's all acceptable so one Christian says, well, I, I just, I choose not to eat pork. I just think it's not healthy for us to eat pork. Sorry, folks. 
when that vision came down of a blanket out of heaven and Peter saw it and Peter was a Jew, he would never touch anything that's not kosher. And that thing had some pork chops on it and some barbecue sauce and whatever else. I mean, I'm being facetious, but, the, but it really was every kind of meat. God was saying, it's all okay to eat every bit of it. Now, is all of it profitable to you? No. And if somebody you know sees that as a real problem, don't walk around and try to make them feel like they're, don't condescend. Be sensitive to them. Be sensitive. Some of you would never think of eating barbecue. You just don't, they don't think it's, well, I'm, when I come to your house, I'll eat what you serve. But I'm still going to go get me some pepper and salt barbecue. Amen? I have freedom to do that. But I'm not going to do it to stick it in your face. And this is where they're going in this debate. James, of, of all the apostles, James, uh, the brother of Jesus, is the one, one of the disciples, who really starts focusing. It's not just about how the Jews treat the Gentiles. It's also about how the Gentiles treat the Jews who have sensitivities. We're going to see that. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as the Gentile will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, Simeon being Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this word, the words of the prophets agree. So now he's going to quote the Old Testament. And he says, uh, uh, as it is written, verse 16, after this I will return and I will build the tent of David that has fallen. I will build its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known, of old, known from of old. So we can only imagine what it must have been like. These godly, passionate followers of Christ are having this great debate about what is required of a, of a saved person after they're saved. What's required of them? And basically what they expounded on was that the truth that salvation is wholly by God's sovereign grace through faith, and it's apart from any ritual. And after you're saved, we don't have to add a yoke on the backs of those who don't practice, don't, don't come out of Judaism. They've never been around what we do. So don't, don't press them to that. This would be like the Acts 15 is like the Magna Carta of all the Bible, okay? Salvation by grace is proven by past. It's proven by several things. Let me give these to you quickly. Write these down. If you've got your little notebook, go ahead and write this in, if you will. Let me give you like five or six proofs of salvation by grace, okay? Number one, salvation by grace is proven by past revelation. Look at the latter part of verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
So that's a reference to Peter's experience with Cornelius and his household being saved. There was no circumcision. There was no law-keeping teaching. There was no ritual to follow. God just saved them, and the Spirit fell upon them, okay? The legalists had no right, Peter's saying, to require of the Gentiles what God had not required, because God didn't require it, okay? Then number two, salvation by grace is proven by the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not just proven by past revelation, it's proven by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So Peter makes the point that the proof of Gentile believers being truly saved on that day in Cornelius' house is the fact that they all received the same Holy Spirit that we, the apostles and disciples, received on the day of Pentecost. Nothing was different. So now salvation by grace is proven by two different ways. Let me give you some more. Salvation by grace is also, number three, proven by cleansing of hearts. Look at verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts. Whose hearts? The Gentiles. By what? By faith. How did he cleanse the Jew who believed? By faith, not by his works. So that's very important. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's uh, riches of his grace. Number four, salvation by grace is proven by the inability of the law to save. It's proven by the inability of the law to save. This is very interesting. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, look at this, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter warns these Jewish believers who are still obligated, for some reason they feel obligated, to keep the laws, the Old Testament laws. He warns them not to put God to test. It wasn't their place to challenge or question God's grace and God's gospel. God's doing it different, and you need to accept that. That's what he's telling them, okay? He, he actually uses a beautiful, uh, a beautiful analogy. He speaks of a chafing yoke. A chafing yoke is a yoke that actually it, 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 it chafes you. It, it, it disturbs you, and that's what they would put on, a, on an oxen. They would, they would put the oxen to yoke. And he, he speak, Jesus even said, if you remember correctly, Jesus said they, they tie, speaking of the Pharisees, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on the shoulders of men. So what does a yoke do? It controls. It controls the oxen so that the oxen work in tandem. It forces them in a certain direction. <coughs> That's the work of a yoke. Well, Peter says, that's what you're trying to do to Christians. You're trying to get them to follow your way. The question I ask is, is it possible that you're trying to get Christians to follow your way? I want you to think about that. <coughs> it's possible. In fact, we probably do it more than we know. We have certain little things that we think qualifies as Christian. And if I don't see those things in you, I question whether you're saved. 
Salvation comes by grace, faith. It has nothing to do with anything else. Isn't it interesting how when we begin to practice certain little, you know, methods that seem to fit us well, it's just natural, our natural tendency to try to get others to do it the way we're doing it. Isn't that true? I mean, that goes to the whole idea. You know, you think about somebody tells you a story that they had, an experience they had, and what do you do? You try to one-upsmanship. You, you try to tell a better story. Brian Regan, in one of his uh, comedian uh, skits, he said, you go to a party and somebody is talking about, you know, uh, or maybe you sh share, you know, I had to have two wisdom teeth pulled. And there's always the person, some guy. Well, you had two. I had four. And mine were impacted. And he goes on and on and on about his. He's always doing, see, we, we, that's our natural tendency. Whatever you've experienced, I'm telling you, I've got, oh, you need to do this. We didn't take time to hear what they were saying and try to identify with their experience and say, wow, that's amazing. And even ask some questions about their experience to show interest in them and their experience. We just jumped to our experience. Oh, you did, oh, oh, you did, oh, oh, well, I did what I experienced. That's human nature. We can apply that same fleshly method to salvation. We need to be very careful, church. Don't put a yoke on someone else. A yoke that you can't even bear. Why do we certain make certain things part of our method for salvation? I'll tell you why. Because it's security. It's interesting how the things that I do are things that I know I can do. I wouldn't put myself out there to do things or to say that this is my method when I can't live up to it. I always find things. I find self-righteous ways. We need to be careful that we not in our self-righteousness try to bring others into self-righteousness. It's salvation and salvation alone. How did you get saved? What is the purpose of salvation? So that you might be redeemed from sin. Who did that for you? Jesus. You didn't contribute. No little method or whatever you practice is ever going to save you or keep you. How many times you go to church, how much money you put in the offering plate, how, what, how you serve in the church, none of that contributes to your salvation. Do you understand? None of it. You're not saved by that stuff. Jesus poured out the riches of his grace upon you that you might be saved. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus saved you. It reminds me of the story of the, the millionaire. Somebody walked up to him and said, hey, how did you become a millionaire? I'd like to learn how. How did it start for you? And he said, well, I remember one day I went to the market and I found a nickel. I picked it up and I bought an apple. I went over to the side alley and I took that apple and I polished that apple and it was beautiful. I took it back to the market and I sold it for a dime. Then I took the two, I took the dime and I bought two more apples I went back in the alley, I polished those two, and I came back, 
And he kept on and on. He goes, I did that all the way up to $1.60. And then my mother and I learned that she had a rich relative who left us a million dollars. It ain't you. You didn't do anything for your salvation. Let go of that pride. Let go of that one-upsmanship. And let just come to a place where you rest in knowing Christ saved me. Christ alone. And who am I to measure and judge somebody else in their salvation? Don't do it. Don't do it. There's only one way to be saved. Amen? All right. Number five, salvation by grace is proven by the fact of signs and wonders. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They didn't fall silent because all of a sudden the subject changed to signs and wonders, and they had a real interest. That's not why they were silent. They were silent because they were unable to contradict Peter's speech. And now all of a sudden there's silence. And then Paul and Barnabas get up and they share the mighty, the mighty works of God. And what was the point? The point was not to look at us because we're mighty. It's that God allowed signs and wonders to occur among Gentiles. If he would allow that, you have to believe that God was in it when they were saved. And then the last point, number six, salvation by grace is proven by prophetic promise. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of who? The Jews? No, mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old, of old. So Paul and Barnabas, they stop speaking. James gives the final speech in defense of salvation by grace And he basically goes back to what Peter said, and then he adds to it an Old Testament prophet, who? Amos. And he quotes him, Amos 9, 11 through 12. James' point is this, that the the prophet said the Gentiles will be in the kingdom without becoming Jewish proselytes. They're not going to have to follow Judaism in order to be saved. That's what God told the prophet Amos. So why make them proselytes now? Why? Well, verse 19, therefore, James said, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. Three things, actually four things, but really three. Look what he says. We're going to say that there's nothing that adds to your salvation other than by grace through faith. That's how you're saved. However, as you walk through sanctification, the process for the rest of your life, Understand, you should abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and comes from and the blood. Strangled in blood is really one thing. It's talking about dietary law here. So why would he do that? He just finished saying it's by grace through faith that you're saved. Is he adding more things to 
No, now James is showing not just concern for the Gentile and how the Jew might force the Gentile back into law. He's now concerned for the Jew who has yet to believe and that the Gentiles would walk around totally in their freedom and never show any sensitivity to Jews who still practice some of the laws. You don't save somebody by sticking it in their face. He's saying we need to be careful how we approach others when they believe differently. We don't need to stick it in their face. We need to show sensitivity. So this is interesting. One of those things deals with morality. The other three deal with sensitivity. Verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. By the way, when Peter began to speak and then Paul and Barnabas and then James, don't think that they're laying out the points so that afterwards they can make a decision and that James made the decision. That's not what happened. They've already made the decision. When they give their speeches, they are simply giving the reasons why it's by grace through faith alone. So all this time, all these speeches, they've laid out why we don't add to salvation. Okay, James, the brother of Jesus, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, so he has the final word on it. And he said, if you look at, pick up the last part of the verse 22, they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. They wanted to send people out who would help inform Gentiles and Jews that salvation comes by grace alone, grace and faith alone, okay? And they also sent a letter with them. Look what the, what the letter says. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, Greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the, for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he mentions earlier to send out uh, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, these are men who in the past have risked their lives for the sake of Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, here it is, no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Not because by doing them you'll be saved. You're saved. But now you are saved. You are in the family of God. Now how you behave in the family will either become, listen, a stepping stone or an obstacle to your brothers and sisters. You cannot just think of yourself and your freedoms as Gentile believers. You still have to show sensitivity to others. And he particularly, in Romans, Paul said, they are weaker brothers and sisters. 
Now let me break it down and explain it to you. So these Gentiles had a practice. The way they would gather their meats for food, they would go to the market and they would purchase the meats. And by the way, the best meats were at the market. And the best meats, before they were sold at the market, had been used in idol worship. They were cut, the blood was shed for the idol worship, and then they would take the portions of meat to the, to the market for, and sell them off. Gentiles, the ch- Gentile believers, because they had practiced that their whole life, they didn't change anything. They just went to the market to get a chunk of meat. And the Jews were like freaking out. That's been offered to idols. So Paul said to the Jews in Romans, and also in 1 Corinthians, he said, uh, you do understand that there's not a demon in that meat just because it's offered before an idol. The meat itself is not a problem. But you also need to understand that how you treat your brother and sister in Christ can have either a positive or a negative impact on them. So, again, what I said earlier, if I'm invited into someone's home, and let's say that I feel there's freedom in having a glass of wine with my meal. I'm okay with that. Let's say I'm okay with that. I go to your house uh, to another believer. I'm not to say when they set down a glass of water or iced tea, say, do you have any wine? That's showing insensitivity. Why? They might be convicted. Their conscience doesn't allow them to drink wine. And listen to me now. They're not wrong in their conscience. You need to live according to your conscience where you might say, I don't have any issue. My conscience is not bothered by the fact that I have a glass of wine with some good spaghetti. You're not wrong either. But you're brothers and sisters, and you got to spend time together. And both of you need to show sensitivity to the other. You know what Paul ended up saying? Don't undo the work of the Lord for a chunk of meat. It's not worth it. That doesn't mean you have to stop buying your meat from the market. It just means don't flaunt the kind of meat you bought in front of somebody who you know would never eat that kind of meat. Does that make sense? Being careful. What did Jesus do when he came to earth? Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself. It says that he considered others more important than himself. The scripture teaches that believers are to prefer one another first. I don't prefer myself first. I prefer others first. What does that look like? In practical terms, when I'm speaking with a brother or a sister, I'm asking questions. How are you doing? And when they speak, I don't just listen for the sake of asking. You know, how are you? Okay. Well, you know, we had a really rough week. Oh, cool. Okay. Wait a minute. Did you hear what they just said? No, I prefer, I listen. I start with them. I don't ever start with me. If they reciprocate and say, how are you? Sure, you can share what your week's been like. But prefer your brother or your sister. Is this coming home for us? Are we seeing it? Well, I'm not going to read it, but let me tell you where this ends, chapter 15. If you turn there, Verse 36, I want you to see this. 
And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, that now they had returned to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, and they taught the elders in Antioch for quite some time. And now all of a sudden, they decide they want to go back to the locations <clears throat> where they had their first missionary journey and check on the churches and check on the believers. That's good. That's a good thing. And so it says, and after some days, Paul and Barnabas, uh, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Remember John Mark? He went on the first missionary journey and halfway through the journey, he abandoned them. That ticked Paul off. But he's related to Barnabas, so Barnabas saw it differently. Now, Paul says, hey, let's go back and visit. And Barnabas like, yeah, let's bring John Mark. Uh-oh, check this out. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose, look at this now, a sharp disagreement. They argued over this matter so that they separated from each other. The argument was never settled in that moment. They literally went their separate way. Paul and Barnabas, what's the point? Even God's special anointed apostles and servants can have relational issues and you got to work through it. And you don't always work through it on day one. It's not pretty when you're in a true relationship with a Christian brother or sister. Sometimes it's ugly, but you still got to work through it. That's your family. Isn't that interesting how that works? You can, you can just grit your teeth when you think about your brother or your sister for what they've done, but if somebody else were to talk about your brother or sister... You come to their defense, don't you? The hardest people to get along with are the people closest to us sometimes. And it's okay. This tells me it's okay for me to have a disagreement with my brother or my sister over a matter. It's okay. What's not okay is that it causes us to separate and we never work through it. That's not okay with God. I want you to see this. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away uh, to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, uh, strengthening the churches. So, interesting. Barnabas heads out for the island of Cyprus, which was the first part of their journey, on the first missionary journey. Paul goes up through Asia Minor into the last part of the journey. Later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9... Paul and Barnabas reconcile. They did not stay, you know, they weren't enemies, but they didn't, say, they didn't stay in a state of disagreement. They finally laid it down. They looked beyond it. But in the moment, sometimes, we feel so strongly about something, it's hard to lay it down, isn't it? We want to make our point. We want them to see our point. They're not going to see it. Sometimes it's better, look, you and I are not in the same place on this right now. I love you, you're my brother, and we do need to make sure we're reconciled. But right now, let's just not talk about this subject. If somebody's trying to push you in a certain direction, 
it's okay to do that, to say, hey, I'm not ready to have that discussion with you because I just don't see it the way you see it, and I don't want it to end in a big fight. So let's just, let's just not talk about that at this time. Let's, let's love each other, and let's, we're going to go to church together, and we're going to love each other. We're going to you know, have apple pie after the church social and all the fun that we do, but let's not force ourselves into an argument. At some point, God will lead you to make that right. God will lead it. Paul and Barnabas came back together. We know that at, at the end of Paul's life when he was in Roman prison, it was John Mark that he asked for to come and visit him. And John Mark ministered to him. So Paul had worked it out, not only with Paul, with Barnabas, but with John Mark in the end. See the point? You gotta work through it. If you go to any church, in a matter of time, you're gonna get wounded or you're gonna get offended by something that another brother or sister does. Is that a reason to leave a church? I would say no. I would say that's just a point of growth that needs to happen in your life and their life. Part of the maturing process is to stay and work through it. Work through it. Now, if they're teaching heresy, that's different. Amen? All right. Well, we've gone way over today, but I want to pray and ask God to bless our time and bless you as you lead today. Let's practice love. Let's practice preference of others over ourselves. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that today you would help us to know that, uh, that everybody in the kingdom of God matters, every human being. The, even those that we would say are a little bit weird, but Lord, to you, they're your child just as much as we are your child. We don't have to be best buddies with everybody in the kingdom, but we must be brother and sister. We must love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you, church. Have a good day today.